0: At a customer service center, thousands of hours of audio are generated. This audio holds a wealth of information that could be transcribed and analyzed, and with the additional data of the most successful customer service representatives, machine learning models could be trained to identify which speech patterns are associated with a successful customer service worker. By identifying these speaking patterns, a customer service center can continuously improve, with the different representatives learning the speaking patterns that are successful. And the same is true for other speech-based tasks, such as sales calls. Cresta is a company that builds systems to ingest high volumes of speech data in order to discover features that correlate with high-performance human workers. Zed Inam is a co-founder of Cresta, and he joins the show to talk about the domain of speech data and what he and his team are building at Cresta. If you would like to advertise on Software Engineering Daily, you can send me an email, Jeff at Software You can reach more than 30,000 engineers every day, and we'd love to have you as a sponsor. And if you are a listener who wants to become a paid subscriber to the show, you can go to SoftwareDaily.com and click subscribe. On Software Daily, you can also find information about different topics, you can find episodes that relate to one another. And we'd love to have you as a subscriber. So thanks for listening. Zed and Nam, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jeffrey. It's awesome to be back. The last time that we spoke, you were doing research at Stanford. Tell me about your research and what you came away with from that research.
1: Yeah, I was uh, focused on how do we build machine learning to improve office productivity. So, uh, how can we build tools that help uh, help people be more effective in the office? And that was that was a predominant thing. And so did a lot of user studies and built tools and software for different types of office work.
0: You eventually came upon this idea of Cresta, which is built to incorporate. AI into educating customer service workers, call center workers, salespeople. Help me understand the problem with the call center or the contact center workflow that you identified.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so the problem there is a problem that we see, a problem that you see across many different workforces. And basically the the question is, how do you make everyone as good as your best person? So in any kind of sales team, any kind of sort of these kinds of contact center environments, you have folks that are really good and other folks that are new and maybe are looking to sort of gain more experience. So how do you take the expertise of the best people and help everyone perform at the level of the best person? And so that's one key challenge that's in this space. And the second is folks are still spending tons of time, tons, tons of time doing tedious repetitive things doing things like filling out forms in Salesforce or other CRMs and doing order clicking and these kinds of things. And so how can you help automate and abstract away the repetitive and tedious bits of their work? And so really two major problems in the space, like how do you help people be fast at the really tedious bits of the work? And how do you help them be good at the bits of the work that are really unique, um, that are really unique and creative to the type of work that they do?
0: That sounds like a really broad domain. What specific subset of that broad domain can you focus on and develop a product in
1: yeah absolutely so it's a very broad domain and it's a very very sort of big idea and so really focused hyper focused on the use case that we have is we started with basically inbound sales chat so you have these large uh, sort of sales conversations that occur over chat and you have teams of 100 people to 200 people for large companies that are selling software or telcos or uh, companies that sell retail products. And the challenges you have on those teams is that you have some people that will take a conversation and convert it three X, the level of somebody else. And what are they doing in that conversation that makes them so much better. And so what we're able to do is go in and look at the conversations for the top performers over the last year, collect the to million conversations that happened over the last year and identify which conversations led to successful outcomes. So you, have a successful outcome and you're able to identify that this conversation led to that successful outcome. And they're able to identify what are the behaviors that the person did on the conversation. And then in real time, you're able to prompt people. So here's here's what the best person would have said at this point in the, in the conversation. And what that does is that gives them the right thing to say at the right point in time. And it really helps them have a better conversation with the customer and really sort of focus conversation, better conversation with the customer that leads to better revenue, better conversion, uh, leads to ultimately better conversation.
0: So you start by identifying the people who are doing something right, who are actually having success. So maybe you have some KPI. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. So we look at the sales outcome for each conversation. Did the conversation result in a sale or did not result in a sale? And then that becomes a training signal for us.
0: And once you have that training signal, then I guess you need to have this backlog, or you need to have a bunch of data associated with the what might have led to that outcome
1: exactly, so basically, we start in the space of companies that do sales within these twenty minute or thirty minute conversations where the whole sort of conversation is the transaction. so think about if you're sort of reaching out to a retail company and you're looking to buy a kitchen sink or you're looking to buy a new phone plan or you're looking to buy sort of accounting software, the sort of context of the conversation contains everything, everything about what you're looking to buy uh, within that conversation. And then we're able to prompt, prompt the salesperson and the uh, support person on what's the best thing to say at each point in the conversation.
0: Now, that's, that sounds really tricky to construct this flow where you can give people recommendations for what to say in the middle of a conversation because, you know, even if you have all the success cases of what led to a sale for the, the 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 sales reps who are having a lot of success, the conversations could go in so many different directions. And you could have maybe somebody who's having success because of the way that they inflect their voice or the way that they pause in the conversation. Can you find enough signal in the noise of just verbatim text that they're saying?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because what ends up happening is you have stuff which is this sort of the uh, sentiment of the conversation, the tonality, all these things uh, that you're referring to. But if you look at it, the real real meat of the conversation is the semantics of what you're saying. So what are the questions that you're asking to truly understand the customer? So let's say you're you're coming, like I'm coming in to sort of interact with you and trying to figure out, uh, uh, I ask about a kitchen sink. And so, the right response—sort of a really good salesperson—will use that as opportunity to understand really what is the kitchen remodeling you're trying to do. So, what is the bigger project that you're trying to achieve, and what is your goal with that? And asking the right questions, they'll understand like what are you trying to achieve. And so, when they when they make a recommendation for a product, it's really understanding you as a person and what you're trying to what you're trying to achieve, and really helping you get the right solution. So that ends up being really understanding both the product and understanding how to really sort of the tacit knowledge of how to understand and get people to open up and build rapport with people and how to connect with them in a way way that a new salesperson might not be good at. And so that's a piece. And so it turns out that really this part of that, that turns out to be a really big piece. And so you point out an interesting tension there, which is like, fundamentally, a lot of conversations, if you go to super, if you look at the different types of sales process, you have sales conversations that are super simple. I uh, think about like one-click Amazon purchases to like these really complex enterprise 10 million dollar, 100 million dollar deals. And on that continuum of sales, like there's definitely some sales that's super, super complex, super one-off, but there's also some parts of sales that's super simple and repetitive, and somewhere in that middle is a sweet spot for where we really focus on, which is when you have a very large contact center environment where you're having these sales conversations. And you're helping uh, helping people perform them more effectively.
0: Okay, so I'd like to talk about the data flow and the engineering side of things. So let's say you you the first problem that comes to mind is you've got let's say 100 sales reps, and you want to identify the top five sales reps how do you build a system for collecting the information on those sales reps and then identifying who is closing the most deals?
1: Yeah, so this is often we're integrating into the existing under underlying infrastructure, which is the contact center infrastructure and the CRM infrastructure. And we're able to basically get a mapping of conversations and the sort of outcomes recorded in the CRM of what was the outcome of that conversation. And that becomes the mapping for us for the success or failure of a conversation.
0: So you you can just integrate with a CRM, integrate with Salesforce or whatever.
1: Salesforce, and then you need to get the actual conversations and the transcripts from the actual contact center infrastructure.
0: Those are already typically set up. You already have access to those transcripts
1: yeah yeah, so we just uh, it's a simple those are integrations though they those are integrations that that are built and that we need to that we build so they're not not exactly simple to do but they're simple I guess simple to think about but to get to build reliable production ready software is always a different challenge
0: okay and then the transcripts that you can pull in you, you know you now have the transcripts and you have the reps that you've identified to correlate to those or that correspond to those transcripts, Tell me about how that you know how you how you look through the transcript and identify what in the transcript is is most relevant. What is leading to the sale?
1: Yeah. So what we've done is we've effectively trained a uh, deep reinforcement learning architecture, which is looking to generate. So it has has objective where it's looking to generate the next response, and it's using the global loss of whether the conversation resulted in a sale or not result in a sale. At the very end. And so in some sense, if you look at some of this game playing AI, it is using a similar it uses a similar approach where you have the success or failure of a particular particular game played. And you're able to you're able to sort of predict the next best move that the game should make based on this based on like sort of ultimately what would lead to a higher higher rate of success or failure. And so it's a, it's a similar approach that we're using here to generate the next utterance, but then not only the next utterance, but what is a sequence of utterances that will result in a successful outcome.
0: And then how do you build the model of recommending chat messages and recommending what the other agents should be recommended to say?
1: Yeah, and so then it becomes an interesting challenge there as well, where you're now predicting the response. Uh, what is the optimal optimal response at that point in time that would ultimately lead to a successful outcome? But then you need to feed in as well, what is the agent's sort of click-through rate for particular suggestion? So, for example, different, different people have different speaking styles. And so you feed that into, into this large, very large-scale transformer model that's taking into context, what is the current context of the conversation? What is this agent's ID? So what is it in, effectively encodes what is their speaking style and what will lead to a successful, successful outcome for the conversation. And it's producing a response or a generated, uh, not generated response that's then sort of being used as, here's a response to use in the conversation uh, for, the, for the next step of the conversation.
0: And can you tell me a little bit more about the engineering behind building the model that those reps are going to, are going to be using, because I I just want to understand how do you create a reinforcement learning model that can adjust to all the different directions that some conversation could go in?
1: Yeah, this is, this again, sort of goes back into sort of really finding out and scoping out the problem, the right problem that you're going after. So if you if you approach certain domains where there's a huge degree of variance in the types of conversations happening, like open domain dialogue, that's almost impossible to solve. But if you really target a specific domain and in specifically in the domain that we have, in for these kind of conversations, there's a particular approach to the conversations that the best best salespeople, the best support people use that leads to a better outcome. And those are conversations where actually the Uh, reps don't let the conversation meander. So they're really focused on here's what the conversational flow is for the optimal thing. And they really bring Mm. that conversation back to that flow. And so learning from that, learning from those behaviors and learning what the optimal flow for the conversation is, then lets the model basically say like, instead of having the conversation meander into one of a million different directions, let's really pull it back into what really needs to get done. And that's why it's a tractable problem for us to solve.
0: So it's tractable because you can, in a typical sales flow there is almost like a flow chart that the sales rep is trying to follow and your goal is to find the language that you know you should be recommending to the sales reps at any given juncture in that uh, that flow chart exactly so if we talk about the reinforcement learning the the system for building these improved models can you describe the reward function and the the policy and the the state management system, the the reinforcement learning model process, you know, now that we've kind of outlined that this, you're trying to go for this, this flowchart model.
1: Yeah, I think that's something in terms of the exact policy and these things would be covered under our IP. I'm happy to share what I can. So I can't unfortunately share too many details on that piece. I think the the key underlying technical challenge there is, there's there's a few challenges, like one challenge is how do you sort of segment, so in the, for any kind of reinforcement learning to really work, you need to discretize the action space to to sort of a, like a reasonable, like reinforcement that's really work reinforcement learning that's really worked, has worked on really discrete action spaces. So the challenge with NLP is how do you really discretize the action space uh, in terms of what are the set of actions a person can take that will lead to success? And that's a key challenge that we solve. And then, then how do you really once you, once you do that? How do you really sort of generate uh, generate responses and conversations to uh, really be contextual to the conversation and based on based on that discrete action space? How do you use that to uh, generate the response for the conversation?
0: Could you just tell me a little bit more about the engineering behind the development of those models? Like what? frameworks we're using and just the, the general process for pulling in the transcripts and, uh, you know, pulling in the other information and, and making this all usable by by the sales teams.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically, we, from a machine learning perspective, we use open source frameworks, right, like TensorFlow and PyTorch. Those are really like best in breed uh, sort of tools for us to build upon. And, the actual sort of data that we, we so basically the process is we ingest the data, the historical data over the last year. We use that to train our we use that to train our models, and uh, it's roughly it takes us a few days to basically train the models. We collect the transcripts, collect the outcomes, and train a model that's looking to generate the sort of optimal response at each point in time based on the success, success or success or failure of particular conversations. And so it's an ingestion process. We train the model, then we deploy it to production. And in production, then we're getting a real-time stream of the actual conversation. So it's like we're pinging an API that's that's calling that server in real-time and predicting a response based on the context of the conversation, the agent that's making the call and uh, sort of what is the optimal response. It's making a response in production. It returns as an API call and we feed that back into our interfaces and into our software. And it's providing a real-time prompt there.
0: So... what is happening under the hood when an agent is talking to a customer? Uh, like the input from the customer needs to be translated into some kind of intent or uh, some model or s- some set of more uh, discrete parameters that can be responded to by the machine, le- whatever machine learning model you've trained.
1: Yeah. And so, under the hood, what's happening is you, the model is identifying, it's identifying from the conversation, what is the intent of the customer? And it's sort of creates these, it's extracting entities, defining, figuring out the intent of the customer and the intent of the conversation. And it's using that to, alongside the full, just unsort of structured actual text of the conversation to predict the, predict the response. And so if you look at it, like, especially if you look at some of these really large scale transformer language models, things are like in the last three or four years, these things have really started working Where, like even in 2016, 2015, it was still dubious at best, whether these language models are actually working. But some of these recent advancements that have happened in the last two or three years have been so significant that you're, I mean, you have coherent generation on the scale of a sentence or two sentences, not so much at a paragraph, but definitely at the scale of sentence or two sentences, you have coherent generation of text and it sounds very unsatisfying when you say it's like oh you just feed it input text and it gives you output text and it's like oh there should be some more engineering involved here there should be like some kind of fancy ontology and like all these things like you need to have this and this and these components but it it just it ends up working and ends up working at because you, what effectively what happens is that you really need large data so for us what really matters is we need to pre-train on a very large corpus of data beforehand And then we need to really fine tune that model on that specific domain of the company that we're working in. But then it turns out that a simple, a simple algorithm just at a large scale of data ends up working really well without sort of too much complex tinkering under the hood to really to sort of map out all these things.
0: To the, the models that you train, do you have some pre-trained models that you're just ingesting additional data into? Or you know, every time you integrate with a new customer, is it a brand new greenfield system?
1: Yeah, we have pre-trained models that we train on more on open domain uh, open domain problems and sort of more fine-tuned conversational problems, and we sort of bring those bring those models in when we're uh, deploying to a new customer.
0: Okay, and do you have like different models depending on the kind of? Thing that's being sold, like if I'm selling some healthcare widget to a hospital, that's going to be a different sales flow than if I'm selling, I don't know, derivatives. I guess derivatives are not exactly a product that you that you might uh, be talking about sales for, but you know, I don't know, Twilio enterprise contract, something like that.
1: Yeah. So, so basically our approach here is that we've built sort of, we've architected to be the same software across all customers, but the models for each customer are different because the data that we train, the data that we train each customer on is a different, different set of data.
0: So in reinforcement learning, like with AlphaGo or other models that play computer games, there's typically a discrete set of actions that the agent can take and in this case you're dealing with natural language because you're talking about people that are talking to each other you got some customer or potential customer that's talking to an agent there is a infinite number of actions that could be taken because it's natural language how do you define the pool of potential actions that could be taken
1: yeah, absolutely, and that's a key challenge, key challenge to solve uh, in order to make it in order to make it work. I think the key insight here is that that actually conversations, uh, conversations. There's a lot of domains where the conversation is actually very repetitive across the conversation. So for these kinds of closed domain problems, the conversations are very repetitive, and so you have the same types of things being said over, uh, over and over again. And because of that, you can really cluster types of responses and cluster messages and conversations into semantic intents. And through an unsupervised approach, you can effectively get uh, an 80-20 rule where you can capture about 80% of the 80% of the intents through unsupervised clustering that really gives you and defines your action space.
0: So you so you can cluster basically you can cluster any given input. And say this piece of input is probably associated with this action. It's prob- probably corresponds to this action that that the person is trying to take. Yeah. How much data does it take to train a model?
1: Yeah, I think some, with some of the advancements that have happened with fine-tuning, that's also dramatically changed, where before, like, you needed to train things from scratch, like, where the common thing was to train things from scratch, and then in an NLP, I think something that's from like two years ago, it became possible to fine-tune. And so that changed the amount of data you actually need. And so for us now, like a sweet spot for us is something in the order of tens of thousands of conversations where that's enough variance and variability in the conversation and the outcomes of each conversation to be able to train train a model to predict uh, predict optimal, optimal optimal next steps.
0: Do you do any simulation to improve the models or do you do any kind of like inflating of the data to improve the results?
1: Yeah. So internally we've built all, we've basically taken the approach or, so this is an engineering approach and the way we think about the company is that we build tools to make it possible to onboard new customers in the matter of, we want to get to the point where we can onboard a new customer in the matter of minutes. And the way to do that is Firstly, recognizing that machine learning and just building machine learning, sort of these kinds of dialogue models and all these things, it's not a self-service approach. So if you like start from day one and decide that you want to be a platform and you want to make it self-service for everybody to do it, you're not going to actually be able to solve the problems for a customer because there's too much sort of nuance and knobs and all these things to change and fiddle with to really get things to work really well. But if you take the approach that you're going to go into a customer, really demonstrate a huge result for them. So like for our customers, like Intuit and Cox Communications, where we've demonstrated hundreds of millions of dollars of incremental revenue, you can really go in and figure out how how to get the stuff to really work for them and how to get the models to like really shine and really improve sales performance. Then what you can do is you can build tool sets around that to really automate the process of onboarding a new customer to the point where you want to be able to get uh, someone who isn't necessarily an engineer to be able to onboard a new customer by themselves because they have the ability to do everything with do everything from simulate sort of tra- train a model with a one click button. So we have that sort of now where ingest the automatically we connects into APIs and these connectors for different chat platforms and voice platforms automatically ingest the data, sort of gets in the format that we need it, and with a one click button they can click it start a training job, and then it generates output for multiple examples of test set conversations, and it's like a one-click dashboard for them to sort of see how it's doing, Uh, being able to compare multiple models, sort of doing A-B tests against multiple models, and then for them to be able to go in and sort of mark certain things as uh, outputs that aren't sort of ideal. And so that serves as training signals where it's like, okay, this is not the ideal output here, or this is the ideal output. And there's some supervisory signals that you can get from that. Um, and so it's basically building tools to help help people more effectively train, uh, sort of ingest, train models and test models, deploy them. Uh, that's our approach. And if you can do that in a way that you can really can enable a non engineer to be basically be able to do this, you can really then scale out that approach. Uh, and that's really that's our thinking here.
0: What's the biggest challenge in dealing with the high volumes of data and specifically the NLP? side of things, is there a lot of manual work or like, what are the workflows of figuring out and cleaning and labeling all the data?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. So there's everything from the data aspect, which is a, there's key challenges there, then everything to serving uh, production, like really, really, really big models in production at a high, high throughput and low latency, like, cause you need to get under hundred millisecond responses. And so there's like key challenges there in terms of solving those uh, sort of production challenges. And there's key challenges in terms of just training. So like, in, if you look at the data, there's all kinds of challenges there, right? So everything in terms of building a pipeline to training a model, uh, you're training it on a very large data set, and you're often training these models on GPUs or TPUs. And so it's like, how, do you, how can you build workflows that really streamline the process and really make it really efficient to train a model quickly and iterate on a model quickly? Because at the end of the day, if you look at the economics, like the biggest cost is off, always the developer time. So the always machi- the sort of person building the model, it's always their time that's going to take the most, uh, that's going to be the biggest cost. So how can you sort of make it possible to train models across multiple TPUs in parallel to sort of reduce the time, reduce that time, and so that they can run multiple experiments and mul- multiple iterations? How can you ingest uh, sort of ingest data in a format that makes it sort of basically easy to read and quick to sort of access while like you're doing random training, uh, basically random batch training. The advantage you have is text luckily is not, it's not a scale problem like Hadoop because text is actually pretty information dense. We're like with even like a very large scale text data. set would be less than hundred gigabytes, like very, very large. Like if you download all of Wikipedia it's 10 gigabytes of data. So it's not a Hadoop level problem. But what it is a problem is that you need to do a lot of computation against that text to really train a model that's effective. And that becomes a key challenge. And so that becomes a key challenge in training. And then that becomes a key challenge in production, where you're trying to now serve models with low latency, high throughput, without sort of compromising the quality of the output.
0: And what are the frameworks that you're using?
1: Yeah, so we use predominantly TensorFlow for training. We use TensorFlow and PyTorch, but predominantly we use TensorFlow because we find that that sort of... Uh, framework is more robust for li- really high throughput, high throughput production environments where t- TensorFlow is effective for us there. And then the rest of our stack is Postgres, Kubernetes, React, other parts of the stack, which are equally as challenging and interesting, I think, engineering problems. But definitely there is a focus these days, but on on the machine learning side of things. But I do think the engineering challenges across the whole stack are definitely uh, really really big.
0: Well, tell me more, like what, are, where are the most acute engineering challenges that you're seeing today?
1: Yeah. So I think broadly, there's a few things that are, there's a few key challenges. I think if you look broadly in the space, one challenge is like, it's effectively a challenge. It doesn't sound sexy, but it's a really key challenge. I think it's a fundamental problem for everything. It's that there's fundamentally different data Platforms and across the across like all all software, right? Everyone has different schemas for the way their APIs, the way you integrate into their APIs, and like how they sort of record a transcript and how, what what are their sort of ways of what are their integration integration APIs in terms of how is a transcript recorded, how is how are these things done, how do you get a new conversation, how do you close a conversation, all these things, and it's a fundamental challenge to be able to sort of build a general architecture that can integrate into the whole sort of gamut of. Of different platforms that exist in the space, um, and it requires uh, sort of understanding all the sort of edge cases that appear and like all the different ways that these things work and occur. And uh, it's actually really hard to build something that is really generalizable. And it, you have to sort of do a, almost like a five eighty rule, where like you build five, you build five integrations to five platforms, and you get about eighty percent of the of the value. So that becomes like a key challenge of being able to build that effectively. And then the second thing is like, once you do build that, right. It's like at the end of the day, what the product is, it's a product is in front of a user. And so the user interface really matters. So how do you, how do you sort of prompt someone and how do you give them interactions in a way that really is not obtrusive to the workflow, but really helps and really helps them sort of have a really effective, effective conversations. And so, so many things matter there, everything from latency to the way you prompt them to like how easy it is to like turn it, to like sort of say no, or how easy is it to use it? What is the friction all these things. And those are like key challenges in building really great interfaces. Like in JavaScript, which is a very interesting language and like we use TypeScript, but there's a lot of key challenges there in terms of making it performant, making it something where it's really usable by the, the salesperson or the support person but then also sort of really, um, it's, it's like something that you, an architecture that you can build upon and that you can continue to iterate because you're constantly ex- experimenting with new sort of ways to prompt users and you're constantly sort of building an architecture that you can sort of build new features and sort of try new things and d- do different things within the, within the system. And so that becomes like, how, like the, you're sort of investing in something and then you build a bunch of tech debt because you're trying out a new feature to see if it works. And once it works, then how do you sort of incorporate that and bring that, in, bring that into the fold? Uh, that's a key. That's a key engineering challenge for us as well, because we're constantly experimenting.
0: Is it an issue to get low latency inference, like on a given message that you get from, you know, a salesperson? Gets a message from a the customer, and you know, could can be a lot of text in a message. Is the latency of an inference ever an issue?
1: Yeah, it is, and so you have to be careful about particularly long conversations and how long it would take to run inference on them and can you do approximation for the very long conversations of the very long context because if you feed token by token of like a 1000 like a 100 message conversation into a large transform model the latency might be up to a minute and so what you need to do is approximate certain parts of the conversation and really only use the inference uh, for the more, more sort of recent parts of the conversation and so that becomes a key issue. And then secondly, like sort of doing it in production, you always have a cost constraint in terms of being able to deliver the deliver the product. And so you need to be able to deliver it in a way where you're not just horizontally scaling out GPUs, where you have a more efficient way to batch them, batch the responses that are coming in from multiple agents. And so that becomes another key challenge where you have a hundred agents using it and they're all sort of sending requests. And how do you batch them in a way that can then be sent to a GPU and give a response back in a really efficient way because GPUs and TPUs are not single. They're sort of optimal for batches of batch workloads where you group a bunch of requests together and serve them all at once, as opposed to sort of doing it one off at a time. And so that becomes another key challenge for us.
0: So if we talk more about the engineering stack, What are the cloud provider services you're using and uh, do you have any interesting anecdotes about building Cresta on top of cloud infrastructure?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So my co-founder, my co-founder, Tim, who is, I thought I was a good engineer, but then I met Tim and I realized I'm not a good engineer uh, at some point in in my, at some point. And so I think everyone has... At some point where they meet somebody much better than them and they're like, okay, this is no longer like your, your self-impression of yourself is out the window. So I think so I knew Tim from the PhD at Stanford and we had sort of interacted a bunch throughout the PhD. And then I started working on Cresta and uh, one day I messaged him like, hey, let's grab dinner. Just have some updates. I've been working on, working on the company have some updates. And so we grabbed dinner at this Thai restaurant in Redwood City. And like showed him like the demo of what I was working on, all these things. And like I had small little office at the time, so like after dinner he like came back and we were just playing around, and hacking around. And he like loved it so much. He joined. He started the next day. He showed, showed up the next morning, and like we've been working together ever since full time. But the next day he showed up and he said like What are the AWS? I was running everything on EC2 instances on AWS. And he's like, This is this is <laughs> what are, what are you doing here? Uh, so Tim had just come from OpenAI. And I think that day he decided, okay, I'm going to set up Kubernetes. And so, like, he spent the next hour or two hours just setting up Kubernetes and just getting everything up and running on Kubernetes. And it was one the speed of it of getting us sort of rearchitected entirely onto Kubernetes was insane because I think he had seen the scale at OpenAI and sort of seen how how sort of certain things can be done like at scale when you have the right architecture in place. And he knew how to do it and he knew how to do it effectively. And so he was able to do that really effectively. But then it became something that when we went into the market, we 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 actually found a lot of companies that didn't want to do business with Amazon. So, for example, um, a lot of companies that compete with Amazon actually don't want you to use AWS for your cloud provider. And so it, that really saved us in a few of these sales deals where like, the customer was like, non-negotiable, you guys can't use AWS. And or like, it would have probably killed those deals for us. Uh, but because we had architecture on Kubernetes, we could then uh, quickly spin up new clusters in JCP and, and Azure and very quickly became multi-cloud. But yeah, and so there's like a few things like that that really sort of the right decisions early on really helped the business really grow. And so that was an interesting, interesting piece. I think it was a good decision on his part to do it early on.
0: So what are, you know, specifically when you, when you're architected on Kubernetes, this might be a naive sounding question, but if you are architected on Kubernetes instead of using raw EC2 instances, what is beneficial about that?
1: Yeah, so there's a few things. It, one, it gives you sort of agno- agnostic, it makes it easier to be agnostic to different clouds. I mean, obviously, your database is still not packaged in the Kubernetes container, and so there's still things that you need to figure out for each cloud instance that you're sort of bringing up to speed. And all these things. And so you have to figure out database and all these ingress and all these things, but it makes it easier to be agnostic to different clouds. And so if you have particular requirements or like say a particular cloud provider is too expensive for a particular workload, it's much easier to switch between different different providers. And then I think just, it became really simple. Another key point where it really helped us was that it became, I think at some point, I remember one day early on in the first six months of the company, like we signed a, we signed our first major deal with a customer and they had like a particular... They had a particular quarter target to hit because sort of they had particular uh, growth estimates that they'd given to wall street and like internally there were red alarms at the company because we're not going to hit this number we need to do everything we can to sort of really hit the number and they brought that's why we they brought us in with such urgency like usually companies don't do business with one person like just early stage startups but they needed they needed the sales number and so like they need to onboard like a couple hundred agents in like in the matter of a day or something And it was like the first sort of spike of traffic that we would see. And our solution was just to simply horizontally scale out our service because the sort of models are independent of each uh, each other because each model is self-contained. And so in production, you can just scale out the, you can scale out the inference models and we're able to like overnight scale up to like this, like 1000 X traffic that we had never seen before because it turned out to be very expensive because horizontally scaling is not the most efficient solution. But that was another thing where it allowed us to quickly scale up to that peak. Uh, and that was a key advantage because of Kubernetes was containerized already. And it became really easy to sort of auto-scale the pods.
0: Wow. And have you noticed anything interesting about how workloads for each company, the, each customer that you work with, like how do the workloads vary across those different companies?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because fundamentally it's a pulse of U.S. business, right? Because... The conversations fundamentally represent transactions that com- people are doing with companies. And for certain companies, they have peaks during uh, Christmas season. For other companies, they have peaks during tax season. For other companies, they have peaks during like sort of summer when everyone's moving. And so you have like just different workloads at different periods of time, uh, depending on like when people are sort of consuming that product in the economy. And so like, you can imagine like at Christmas season, all the retail companies have just huge amounts of traffic that they just, that's where they make all, that's, they make huge amounts of money during Christmas season. And then like summer is when a lot of people move. And so like a lot of companies that sort of service homes with like cable plans and all these things and internet plans, they have a lot of traffic because a lot of people are moving in that time period. And taxis and all the accounting companies and all these these folks have a lot of traffic at the beginning of the fiscal year. And so that's like when people are buying those kinds of products and it becomes a reflection of underlying conversations and underlying transactions happening across the United States.
0: Amazing. Do you have any perspective on what is going on right now in the economy. Um, I don't know, you know, how many customers you have and to what sense you have a pulse of the the, the world of business. But I mean, you know, in the post-COVID world, you know, you have kind of a divergence of opinions on what's going on with the economy. Some people think it's the stock market continues to go up because it's the Fed is printing money and just buying lots of assets and it's kind of an artificial thing or it's just kind of propped up. But, you know, there's also just maybe a case that the digital economy has become so unmoored from the, you know, the world of restaurants and construction sites and such, such and such, like, maybe we have uh, an economy that's actually resilient to this kind of thing. Do you have any perspective on what is going on with the economy?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, I think broadly, I think there's a lot going on. So it's hard for one particular perspective To state, the thing with the economy is that, or with any economy is that it's just such a complex system that if you try to simplify it, it's, you're not doing the thing justice because it's just such a complicated system. And so I won't be able to fully address what's going on with the economy, but there are interesting trends I'm seeing in in the sort of market based on the data that we have, which is interesting. And I use that sort of guide my thinking on it. But again, the economy is a very complex system. So it's hard to, hard to say exactly what's happening. Like one trend we did see across many customers, which is that all of a sudden overnight, all these retail customers had to shut down their in-store operations and they had to then move effectively to like, they have these revenue forecasts for in-store sales and they had to move entirely to digital channels. And all of a sudden they have to sort of drive sales through their digital channels, like that would, that would come through in-store. And so we actually had customers who bought us in this period that basically we needed to sort of convert their in-store salespeople to online and phone salespeople. And so like, it's like, how do you, how do you train them on board them to have great conversations over messaging and phone? And it's uh, basically like, we had one company sleep number actually that was, so they sell mattresses and they were sort of, they announced their Q1 earnings last quarter, Uh, their Q1 earnings and their stock went up 30%, even though they shut down all their stores. And they had actually brought us in and we had demonstrated a 24% increase in revenue per conversation. Uh, so, yeah, so it was like a $7.3 million incremental revenue for their business within a two week period. And they brought us in to really do that, to really drive the online and phone sales. And uh, they exceeded analyst expectations and their stock went up by 30% the day they announced um, their earnings. And So like that was something where it was like a dramatic sort of improvement for their business uh, where they had to shift. And so like their sales are still down relative to like their ins because their whole in-store operations are shut down but their sales are still down overall but they're like they're doing much better than expected because they're bringing in the right technologies to really help augment their workforce so that's one thing that's happening and then the other companies are actually benefiting from it where you have all these like telcos that are actually sort of seeing huge like unprecedented unprecedented volume where because now everyone's at home everyone needs better internet plans and better home entertainment and all these things and so they're upgrading their internet plans and upgrading all these uh, all these sort of parts of their packages. And so they're seeing some really great sort of traffic and volume. You have parts of the economy definitely SMBs are the most hit, and SMBs, especially like sort of SMBs that are in person in person locations, and that's the fundamentally the part of the economy that's sort of definitely the most hit. And so it's a function of basically they lost the foot traffic and they lost basically the folks sort of transacting with them and that part of the economy is is sort of right now somewhat kept afloat by the ppp and all these all these sort of government programs but it's not clear that sort of when the economy does come back that it's going to be like a rebound back to what it was before it will likely be uh some kind of uh some kind of sort of delayed u period where sort of it takes us a while to get back to the state that it was before
0: amazing so can you tell me more about the problem space of the company? Now that we've talked through a lot of the minutiae, just zoom out and tell me what is what has been really hard to solve. What has been the areas of the company that maybe are giving you pause or you're sort of starting to identify like the prototypical issues that you're going to be grappling with you know, for the foreseeable future?
1: Yeah. I mean... To to give you some context, I think a lot, so last time we chatted, I was doing my PhD and I I dropped out of the PhD. So this is a very focused problem to really increase sales performance. But for me, if sort of the, the major thing that's happening is that there's a major shift in the way people are, people are going to work. And it's sort of happens every, if you go back to, it happens every hundred years or so. So if you go back to early 1800s, sort of a single person could reap a quarter acre of wheat per day in like 1802 and 1803. And then by 1820, a single person could reap hundred acres of wheat per day. And it was this 400X improvement in productivity because of the horse-drawn reaper. The technology that became, that came in was a horse-drawn reaper, and all of a sudden unlocked this massive productivity boon. And it made it possible for farms to be built that could support full civilizations and cities could be supported and farmers can now support many more people. And it just changed the way modern civilization operated and then you zoom forward 100 years. You go to early 1900s, and that's when the first manufacturing was really happening. When you had sort of cars being built, but the early cars in 1902, 1903 were all sort of cars that were bespoke, really unexpe- really expensive, and really unreliable, and sort of were built sort of for in, for rich people. For like individually, not many people could afford them. They just weren't a, a great business to be in. And it wasn't until Ford and General Motors really sort of built the first scalable manufacturing principles with the sort of assembly line. And they made it possible to build a car where before 1902, it took 800 hours to build a car. By 1920, you could build a car in two hours and 30 minutes. All of a sudden, it made cars affordable by the middle class. And everybody, many more people could afford a car. And it changed the way modern U.S. US society could be functioned because now you could build roads, people would go to restaurants. The way that we sort of transported and commuted and how we spent our recreational time completely changed. The whole nature of cities changed. And so the same thing really is happening in office work. If you look at office work right now, like the clerical work that people did in the 40s and 50s and then started using software for in the 80s and 90s, that's like stuff that doesn't necessarily have to be the way it was 100 years ago. Like if you you go forward 50 years from now, like, will people still be doing the same repetitive, tedious things, like in terms of filling out forms and like doing those repetitive things? And will people really be using the same type of software to do their type of work? Gut was like, no, this is not going to be the case. Like this this whole type of work is going to change and machine learning is going to help sort of the nature of this work change. And so for me, the sort of, for me to, to drop out, it was like, fuck, like I want to be a part of this. I want to be able to say that I sort of helped changed the way people worked. And I sort of brought up sort of help sort of was a part of the shift of the way that people, uh, people did this kind of work. And with machine learning, you're seeing it now, like in the last 10 years, if you look at the US economic productivity in the last 10 years, it's actually been flat. And if you, you measure economic productivity by the total GDP output divided by the total number of hours worked by the US economy. And it's a very simple number. But if you look at it for the last 10 years, it's been entirely flat, we actually have not seen any GDP improvement. And there's a lot, all kinds of hypotheses and like as to why that's the case. I and mean, we've had so much progress since like, this is, since that time, but it just hasn't happened. We haven't seen the numbers. But like for, for this, for, for this was like, here, you go into a company, you increase their sales performance by 24%, you see the stock price go up by 30%. I mean, it's like, wow, you actually had an impact on GDP and you actually made this company, you sort of built the economy, you're sort of helping improve the economy and helping improve the GDP by sort of building tools and helping people be more productive And like, you're sort of seeing that now and it's sort of the same shift is going to happen. You see these 24, 30% gains, but you're going to see a hundred X gain in the way people work and the productivity of people in 10 years, in terms of how office work is thought of where you might have a hundred sort of a person doing a hundred times as much effectiveness of work that they were doing now. Uh, And so that's
0: really the sort of really
1: exciting thing to me. And that's why, that's why I get so excited about, about what we're working on and why I dropped out.
0: Wow, okay. Well, that's really cool. I mean, your, your bright future for the world of machine learning actually feeling present in every element of our lives, I can't wait for that to come. I mean, you do feel it in small ways, but I guess this will be a boiling frog, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting analogy. Yeah. I think, yeah, it'll be as pervasive as software is right now. Like like And the, all the folks in the nineties, like Gates and all these folks would talk about how a microcontroller would be in every single device that you have. Like there'd be a computer in every device that you have. And like uh, people kind of would w- like sort of pull it, put off as wishy-washy, like personal computers are like what we're going to have. Like first it was mainframes and personal computers. And then nineties, everyone started saying everything will have a computer. And then that actually turned out to be true, right? Because you have microcontrollers in pretty much every single device that you have, like everything from your headphone to your cars, like all have microcontrollers and computers in them. Um, And it's just something that it just happened. It just, everything became an electronic device. Um, I think the same way, it's not like everything's gonna be a machine learning device, but you're gonna see it happen in ways where like you wouldn't have even imagined that experience before, but machine learning is gonna unlock it. Like before, if you you ask somebody in in 1899, like, would you like a car or like what, like they would be like, no, like what, what the fuck is a car? Like the roads aren't even like paved. Like how am I going to drive a car to get to the next town? Because the roads are like, they're not even paved. Like I, I, it's a, it's a two day journey. But then once the car sort of came, then that sort of sort of created this experience where now all of a sudden it made sense to invest in road infrastructure and made sense to invest in highways and all these things, And all of a sudden it sort of changed the way people experienced things and lived. And I think the same thing will happen in machine learning where machine learning will unlock new experiences and make it possible to do new things. And that's going to unlock entirely new things that we weren't have even imagined to be possible. And just one day it's, it's going to happen that, oh, shoot, everything's a mission. Like machine learning is like sort of impacting like so many experiences in my life or making it possible that we'll, we'll sort of recognize that.
0: Okay, just to, to wrap up, what other areas would you be working on if you were not working on Cresta?
1: Yeah, uh, I had a list. I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening. I think one thing that's happening that's interesting, if you look broadly... I think healthcare is a very interesting market, but it takes someone who has really a stomach of steel to like go and uh, decide that they want to spend the next 20, 20 years in the healthcare market. But I think broadly, I think in that market, you have basically mass system, mass orders of ine- inefficiency in that market where it's like, it's just the way the whole system is set up is, is sort of highly, highly inefficient. And uh, I think that there's a lot of things that you can do there. And I think like, for example, one thing, you look at like, uh, like I think at the same time as starting Crust, I was evaluating and uh, sort of working on a sort of a digital, patho- digital pathology. And so basically, the FDA had recently approved devices to do digital pathology. So like sort of looking at looking at sort of uh, skin cells and these things. And it became like the first FDA approved device to do that digitally, where before it wasn't digital at all. And that I haven't actually tracked that market, but that's something like that really unlocks a market opportunity where all of a sudden you have instead of having pathologists sort of distributed across the world or like in an inefficient way where you have a pathologist at the local doctor's office, when it's digital, you can be much more efficient about it. You can build centralized systems or you can build a marketplace. You can sort of build these kinds of really efficient ways to be able to diagnose uh, diagnose uh, these kinds of these slides. And so that unlocks a major, major efficiency. I think if you scope out hardware problems like teleoperation, I think there's a massive opportunity in teleoperation where you can teleoperate uh, robotics and teleoperate sort of these uh, kinds of like kiosks and these things that, that will, are one step further from the current automated experiences, but are not so complicated that they wouldn't be feasible. I think that's a really big market opportunity. I think the challenge with some of these opportunities is that it's like business is all about figuring out like what is the first thing you can do that gets you to like some kind of repeatable system? And then how do you build up on that? And that's like what Crusta why we chose like a particular sort of sales, inbound sales conversations as like the starting point because it's a great place to build a business. And then it lets you sort of build towards something greater. But for these kinds of things, you really have to figure out, like, what is the piece of it that's really going to build a great business that will then let you build upon it to sort of reach the full vision of the company? Uh, And that becomes a challenge, I think, for any of these opportunities.
0: Okay, Zed, thanks for coming back on the show. It's been great talking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Jeffrey.